this week on Tuesday Noon, part two of our conversation with Steve Burt from Clarity Innovations. Is technology getting it done in the classroom, and what is up with the $100 laptop? That's Tuesday Noon for this week, June 13th, 2006. Part of the thing that's really cool, so if you look at doing online stuff where things have traditionally been text-based, email-based, mm-hmm. so that's, that's where a lot of the stuff came from. Then you move on to some of these newer type of tools, audio, video, collaboration, those sorts of things. It opens up all those other learning styles because it gives you, it touches you in all these different ways that maybe just email might, for example. Mm -hmm. I think so much of the fear about quote-unquote online learning stems from, in a way, an online course often gets equated with a sort of correspondence course of 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I remember when I first saw correspondence courses, you know, you just... A student would get a big manila envelope in the mail, and they'd have you know their entire coursework, and basically they read it, they did five tests, and they got credit. And, and I remember being in, in high school, and kids would choose to do correspondence courses because it was so much easier, and they didn't have to even deal with the seed time. They just go in the library, do what they want, and make sure that their four or five assignments were taken care of. And for so long, and by that I mean through, I think, a lot of the 90s, the distance education an early online education model just sought to kind of replicate that. Let's take, you know, first we've got worksheets in teacher's file cabinets. We put them all together and we call that a correspondence course, you know, when you marry that with a textbook. Then if we take all of that and scan it, right. then, we've got a, then we've got an online course, yeah, exactly. yes. right? And that's where yes. we were sort of left off. So when, yeah. when you, Mary, were telling your story about this sort of, you know, kind of longtime educator who was pretty hesitant or even resistant to doing an online course. I'm sure it's, you know, I share that kind of feeling when you think about that model of online learning or, you know, the other sort of divergent track which occurred in the 90s was the kind of video conference or satellite course model where it was the exact same thing that a teacher did in front of a you know, face-to-face classroom. It just happened to be with a fancy overhead projector that broadcast to students sitting, you know, in remote classrooms. And I think there's great advantage to that when you're talking about the kind of rural-urban divide and, and access to learning. But, tr- you know, genuine, true, I don't know if I want to necessarily co- coin a term, but contemporary online learning has so much capacity built into it that didn't exist in those models. And I think the bigger point is don't exist in the face-to-face classroom. You know, the ability when you're online to be able to see that, okay, at this moment there are six other people or eight other classmates online, and I can IM them and ask a quick question is something that you it's pretty rare in the face-to-face classroom environment that you can do that. When you don't understand something, maybe it's even from a week or two weeks ago, you can quickly send an IM, whether it's to an instructor or to a peer, and get an answer. There's really nothing like that in the classroom because as a teacher, if I'm lecturing, I genuinely don't want to be interrupted as often as instant messaging is an interruption. Or if you're doing, you know, kind of group activities, it's just a question of one instructor to 20, 30, 40 students and how can you get around to answer those questions. So there's, to me, such greater capacity um, and, and and then in the end, I, I think, or I hope anyway, greater learnings that come out because there are these kind of tools um, accessible to students and, and to instructors. What's that? It's that collaboration, and mm-hmm. it's really what it is. And even when you if you facilitate a good class, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of collaboration. And so that's what you're trying to mimic, the whole 
record a video and then just show it on TV and you take notes and stuff. And I, and I remember taking classes like, yeah. they suck. And and really, the amount of retention is just is just horrible. It's that mm-hmm. collaboration part that really is what makes education so great. And it's it's more than just the individual pieces of content mm-hmm. themselves. And, and I think that's what we're trying to mimic. And as the tools get better, we mimic that better and better. So when we talk about online learning or distant learning as it used to be called, it was it was very one way, right? And so there wasn't a lot of that and it, and it continues to be more and more and more with things like, you know, MySpace and those sorts of things because you can IM people and ask questions and play a video and audio and all those sorts of things and it brings it together. So it becomes more robust. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it becomes, it becomes better. Exactly. Quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, and it's a funny, there's a, there's, I think, peculiar arguments that take place. You know, if, if you have a student who turns in a, literally a typed report, meaning they did it on a typewriter, you know, I, I think everyone's probably going to share a little bit of a dismay, not because there's some sort of Luddites, you know, not wanting to use a word processor, but it's because there's a whole host of tools that we all kind of take for granted. I mean, exactly. I, I taught a lot of 10th grade English classes. And, you know, there was a certain kind of dismay as a teacher when, it, when a kid turned in a paper that they typed up on, on Word and they didn't even bother to hit spell check. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm not, I, I never advocated, don't do that. I expect you to go through and manually spell check. Use the tools that are available to yeah. you um, and, and go from there. And I think it's a similar kind of peculiar argument that takes place now with these technologies. People push back and say it's not as good as face-to-face lecture. And for the best lectures, it probably isn't. That presumes that the people who aren't choosing to use these technologies really are the best lecturers. That's right. And there's just so few, you know, there's it's supply and demand. There's so yeah. few great engage. you know, around this room, I'm sure we could all come up with a handful between the four of us, we well, might come up four. with at least four. four. I can tell you four great ones right now. Other than that, eh, you're you not know, counting Pete, are you? Well, he's kind of <laughs> iffy, but you know, there you we'll go. Keep him around. And that's just be kind of Jamie's point too, which is that's assuming the instructors in the classroom also have great facilitation skills. Absolutely. Which is to be, you know, controlling the dominators, the snipers of the discussion, mm-hmm. to the drawing out those people that sit back and, and choose not to share to make sure that you are getting all that great stuff out on the table. You know, uh, I, and that's I, a key I, skill as well. I think one of the my key learnings as a as an instructor came when I was going through my graduate program when I realized that the best instructors that and I admit I probably learned this way too late. The best instructors were the ones that enabled me to teach my peers. And that's what these online tools are allowing us to get back to in many respects. When I can go ahead and say to my you know, online class or even my class that's sitting in the classroom, when you have trouble, here is your friend's Skype ID and call them up. Get them on the, get them on the horn and get their answer. They know this topic. They can teach you something. Uh, and to get out of the way, in fact, of the learning process, lets the learning process really flourish. Well, that's why you call them facilitators. I mean, really, when you think about it, I mean, that's what you're doing. Now, but there's the opposite side. You will have some students who will then complain and say, for example, I, the teacher isn't teaching me. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because they're used to a particular model where exactly. it's very one way. And so when they're saying they're not teaching you, not sending you the class, I can't tell you for sure, but my gut tells me, 
odds are you're learning a whole lot. It's just different than you're used to, and you're learning it through a, a different process, and so you're not comfortable with that yet. And the teacher's probably doing exactly what they need to be doing, uh, and you just don't know that yet. And, and my experience with that is similar, and it, it also the only addition I was at it, add is that it often is a question of pace. Because when you're dealing with a broad group, sometimes you go a little bit, you go slower yeah. to kind of, you know, your target as an instructor is to kind of meet the majority, the middle. And, and typically the people who, uh, in my experience, was the, uh, the students who complained that they, quote, unquote, weren't learning. It was really a question about pace, that they got this stuff early on, whereas a, you know, a lot of other folks in the class didn't. Well, in higher education particularly, mm-hmm. and this is probably for another topic discussion another day, but when you talk about Gen Y and you look at the age groups, the higher education yeah. and, and, and adult learning and going back to school, and so you've got maybe a disparate age, so you've got some experience and less experience, and then it becomes, well, I'm not learning anything because maybe the pace is, like you said, different mm-hmm. and the content level is a little different. And how do you manage that? And those are the core great. questions of yeah. teaching. I mean, that's yeah. what makes a good teacher is being able to monitor and adjust and make people feel comfortable in the classroom. Uh, and sometimes you can, and sometimes it's really, really hard to it's do. It's an art. It's yeah. not a science. That's exactly right. All right, Steve, one laptop per child. What do you think? I'm a, I'm a big, this a new big fan initiative? of this. What is this? I'm sorry? <laughs> is this a new Republican initiative? What? <laughs> One laptop. one laptop per child. Go, goes along with no child left behind. No, no child left behind. Yeah. All yeah. Left, yeah. All left. We're not going to leave them behind. That's exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking in terms of, of this concept, and you know, we've got faculty saying we're not trained enough. We don't right. know the we don't know the tools, but we're going to give all the guys. It should be one laptop per teacher. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's but they got to get theirs too. But it's I mean, there's, there's seventy five. There's a whole lot of you know sort of separate interest groups. So. The one that I'm most interested in, in terms of these initiatives, is the $100 laptop initiative, which was an an idea put forward by Nicholas Negroponte, who founded the MIT Media Lab. And what he said, his suggestion, was that you can take the low cost of, of electronics right now and marry that with the low cost of software, meaning open source, we're talking about Linux based systems, and put together a laptop that should be able to cost less than $100 that does the majority of the features that we're used to a $1,000 laptop doing, right? Well, which really is is the office, I mean, Excel, Word, those sorts of things in terms of being able to do, and maybe some internet browsing. That's right. It's right. Really, it's what most people use their computers for. It's open office and and Firefox is is kind of what it boils down to that will run on on a system with very little memory and very little storage capacity, et cetera. And, you know, there's all kinds of little shifts and ebbs and flows. But what interests me about um, the one laptop per child initiative is that the target audience at this point is really to have, whatever you want to call it, developing countries. It's students in the developing world can get access. That's what the $100 you know, price point is. This is not to be equated with one-to-one initiative, which is typically how laptops for students gets marketed here in the United States, and that's one-to-one computing, meaning, you know, a district comes on board and buys hundreds, if not thousands, of really expensive, you know, brand-name machines. And, you know, Microsoft and, and other competitors are saying they, they're they working on a three to $400 laptop that they feel will be, you know, competitive on that basis. To me, what's interesting about this and what I think is so provocative is for a lot of us, probably, probably without question, those uh, the four of us in this room, 
being connected to the to a browser, to the internet, to the data that's accessible, be it your social networking tools, email, or simply the news via a browser, uh, without sounding too highfalutin, has sort of radically changed the way you interact with the world. I, I know it has in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it's that social networking. I mean, that's really exactly what it is because you can extend out like you couldn't before. I mean, there's all kinds of examples, whether it's, you know, I've made new friends across the country, across the world that, you know, in the 80s I don't think would have been possible because I wasn't much of a pen pal writer at that point. But anyway, <laughs> that's a little bit of a side. <laughs> Sorry for that little, you know, side trip. What's interesting is, of course, applying this model in the developing in the developing world. Um, I was down uh, in I was down I was in Peru last fall, and Peru in rural Peru outside of Lima has made a pretty big initiative to get um, ISPs internet access to all kinds of different communities in the form that it's taken are really low cost internet cafes, and by that I mean less than $2 an hour and $1.75 an hour and you can go sit in front of a, a machine um, but it's tied to one particular place and of course you're basically just going to get on onto a browser to access information and I think what this you know what one laptop per child holds the potential is a family a child a group of children have access to content all the time in the same way that we do in this world and have access to the same sorts of resources, tools, and, and diversions as well. And, and I think this ha- has tremendous potential uh, in, de- in the developing world. I mean, I just think about, um, you know, one other example that I, I've read quite a bit about that I think is really engaging is some entrepreneurial folks in the highlands of, in the highlands of Thailand, what they do is they have a laptop and they sync it up in the morning and then bicycle up to these remote villages and they sync it up in the way that, you know we all sync up say Outlook for our email except it's multiple accounts and people these people from the villages just come to this bicycle mer- messenger and check their email hmm. send new emails out and of course it's not connected at the time but here you're getting access as it were in, in a kind of shoehorned manner to really remote rural people mm-hmm. and it maybe comes in once a week but what I think of, uh, the initiative like Negroponte's at the, at the MIT lab offer is the capability for people all over the world to be connected uh, in the same way that we kind of take for granted Europe, North America, other parts of the developing world. Well, it's education, Asia. right? So the more educated you are about those and the more access you have to tools and information and then you can make informed decisions for your life and you can change the way things are going or whatever you want to do and all the way to your government or whatever it may be. I mean, it really is very, information is powerful, and that's what you're you're providing. Well, and, you know, I, I admit, I mean, when I first heard about it, and when I first saw it, I mean, I just brought up a picture of it, and it looks, it it's cool looking, you know. I mean, it's a, it's got the little rabbit ears for the Wi-Fi and all that. It looks good. But the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, this is targeted to developing nations. So that's great. What do they need with one laptop per child? Is that maybe overkill for developing nations? Is there other sort of aid we should send them? And then I sat down with Wikipedia, and I realized, you know what? Whatever you think of Wikipedia and the the you know all the uproar with going in and congressmen changing their own entries on Wikipedia, that global resource has changed the way people learn, people know things as a storage as a storehouse. Mm-hmm on that website and uh, boy that's really the point that's really the point of this technology well again it goes back to 
sharing. It's like it's like when we facilitate courses. I mean, you're really just passing information around, and you've got a little piece maybe that somebody else doesn't have, and you, and you essentially put it out there and say, let's let's talk about it, Let, let's discuss it, let's mm-hmm. chew it up, let's change it, let's test it, and all those. And that's really what you're doing, like Wikipedia. Let's put it out there and let's see what the universe has to say about it, and and we'll collaborate on it and make some decisions, sure. those sorts of things. That's that's exactly what it is. Uh, do you worry though that we become then too dependent upon technology? I, I mean, I think that's certainly a worry, but to me the point is the greater the use, the more transparent technology tends to become. What do you mean? Things tend to operate in the background. Uh, no, we haven't had any discussions about email accounts. Mm-hmm. Email has mm-hmm. become transparent. It just works yeah, in the background. Yeah. You know, every once in a while you encounter somebody who doesn't have an email account. And, and I'm not necessarily putting them down. I th- actually, I think that's kind of laudable. But... Uh, <laughs> I wish I didn't Actually, have an email account. I get irritated. Account. I'm like, you have no email account? Well, God, that I means I've got seven. to call you. I hate that. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we are, we are in an era now where people tend to use email and stuff more than calling and more and more mm-hmm. so. It's like, when you mean I have to pick up the phone? Can I just send you an email? Can I? Because I, you don't want to take that time or whatever. You want to mm-hmm. just do it, forget about it, and move on and assume that it's going to get taken care of. And, and so we become used to multitasking all those things, and we yeah. don't want to be single-threaded like that. And, and I think the more access, you know, and, and internet access has been has been the sort of to me the the next um, icon, the next kind of shibboleth thereafter. Email. You get everyone to have email access. And the next question is, you know, because you can do email with a dial-up modem without too much difficulty. And then the next point is is getting people to have broadband access. And you know, I think. Whole classes of, of groups, media, advertising, you know, they love this whole model because you can start pushing out content um, through, you know, a big pipe to people's desktop, whether it's commercials or whatever it happens to be. But to me, to my mind, that just becomes more and more, in some cases, background noise, but it just becomes a sort of transparent how you use and work with technology. I mean, instant messaging is same falls in that same category to me where 10 years ago, every school, I think, pretty safe to say, blocked pretty much all kinds of instant messaging once they found out. Once tech coordinators found out about it, they blocked it, right? Then, and and this parallels a lot of what what we do at Clarity Innovations, then business is starting using it. You know, Mm -hmm. IBM developed their own proprietary instant messaging client, Um, Intel, started allowing, I think it was MSN or Windows Messenger to start going through. And then all of a sudden it shows up in the policy of these corporations that when people are at their cubes, they're expected to be online with Instant Messenger open because their studies prove that it increases productivity. So that, you know, the debates that I remember hearing in the late 90s about Instant Messaging being this kind of constant distraction and, you know, how can students work or do homework if they're also instant messaging. They've kind of died away because adults use it as almost as much as you might use um, an email account, certainly more, I think, for most people than the telephone. And, and I, I think that's what this promise of um, the One Laptop Per Child initiative holds, is getting connectivity and comfort and use of technology um, as, as broad-based as some of those tools are. Um, you know, it, to me, in a way, thinking of it personally, you know, my, my brother lives in Ireland. He, he and his family, 
And it's not it's not as if we live next door because of technology, but it's a great benefit to be able to call, send email, communicate, you know, via the web, mm-hmm. however that's construed. But as an educator, there's so many places of the world that I have taught about, had students, whether it's history or social studies type classes, do work on, and there's so there's such limited access to those people. But Having laptops and connected devices in the hands of those students, suddenly I think you can start to, to bridge those gulfs and, and make some literally connections opens with up them. the whole world. I, I mean, think it really it does. literally does. And, and so does that in a way, as we've um, kind of going back to where we opened this up, does that change to some extent that role of the teacher, the instructor, and talking about you know going and having the teacher having a MySpace you know, so that they are starting to model the right behaviors with technology. Also, um, as we have such major amounts of information at our fingertips, developing the critical thinking skills to analyze that information. Because now that we do that, anybody can put anything out there, and we need, on the other end, to have the right skills to know when we're getting some valid information, opinionated information, Mm -hmm. bad information, whatever. The case I really like that as you throw in that modeling behavior because it's one of those things that I think we see instructors shun is, you know, we, we're going to turn off the technology because it doesn't equate to good learning. And here it is. I mean, students will listen to whoever or whatever steps up to the mic. And, you know, the instructor's voice just isn't that loud anymore if they don't have that sort of tech cred uh, that the students are looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. that, that issue of internet literacy and you know the basics on, of getting a student to understand how they can validate and vet a site and know you know you can do all kinds of searches whether it's who is look up to see who owns a site there's all that kind of stuff but it's mm-hmm. more what you were getting at Mary which is teaching critical thinking skills and the kind of evaluation you know the higher order thinking skills when you when Think about those kind of taxonomy, Bloom's taxonomy, for example, of getting that kind of analysis, evaluation, and, and synthetic learning on, on the part of students. Technology can be a great, you know, it affords terrific opportunities because there's such a wealth <laughs> of material to analyze out there. Yes, exactly. But I think one of the things we're going to have to do, Mary, is, is work on how do we train faculty to take advantage of it. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, if, so you're, if you're not raised in it, yeah. and a lot of educators aren't going to be. I mean, they're, you're teaching for 20, 25 years, and so you know a lot of this is happening while you're you know going through the process of teaching. So it's training and education in terms of here's what it does, here's how you can use it, here's how you manage it so it doesn't overwhelm you, mm-hmm. here's how it doesn't become a distraction or mm-hmm. doesn't get abused. And here's and how your students expect to be communicating. And, and here's what they need and here's yeah. here's why and all those sorts of things. And and that's gonna take some time, there's no doubt about Without it. Because we have to educators are slow. I mean, like bankers. And banking doesn't change. Education is very slow to change Mm -hmm. as well. And and so you've got to kind of push and push and push and eventually, but it's going to take a lot of time. You know, it's a process over time. Absolutely. I I mean, and that certainly gets at the sort of irony of the extent to which blogs are becoming more and more accepted on the part of educators using web blogs. But to most of our students, that's five- or six-year-old technology. You know, Live Journal, Zanga, all of these have been out 2000, 2001. It's not necessarily that it's passe. It's just, once again, education so, is so far behind um, you know, the target audience, which is the students at pretty much all levels, from elementary through college level. Um, and, and often I think that applies 
you know, at the, at the adult learners as well, especially if they're coming from, you know, jobs where they're expected to use a lot of technology. Then, you know, they come back into the, into the classroom setting, and it's a sort of funny little time warp. Um, and, and it's difficult. Education is... Do you think online will replace the classroom? I mean, I'm just curious. Is, I mean, because really you see this, this shift clearly where, where online is growing just exponentially in, in all kinds of areas. And so then the question becomes, what's the relationship between the, you know, an online model and a model where you're actually meeting in a classroom? And does one replace the other, or do they support each other? Or Yeah, I don't think so. I see I mean, them supporting each other, really. Yeah. I mean, at the K-12 level, you know, there would have to be some fundamental so- social changes in terms of sure. just our babysitting needs. Yeah. But in adults, <laughs> that, that the school fulfills. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> being very blunt about it. But in, in, in adult education, in higher true. education, where you're going back to school, I mean, where where is that? Will there always be a place for both? I mean, I, I think there are real. I, I hesitate to call them threats because I don't necessarily think it's threatening. But when you think about a lot of the content that's taught at the university level in terms of general ed requirements. A lot of content that's done, whether it's the GED or the, the sort of basic 100-level courses at a community college level as well, I can see more and more of those you know, new models emerging where the vast majority of that coursework is completed primarily online and blended in ways that we're not typically doing now, meaning uh, I'm sure there are, I, I don't know any actual examples. I know I've participated in some discussions about the kind of freshman first-year seminar courses that are cross-curricular where you've got one instructor responsible for three, four, five domains, you know, the kind of math, English, science, all of those being done uh, from one instructor just, you know, maximizes, I think, at the university level some cost efficiencies, but so much of that content can be taught, uh, you know, if not better, can be probably facilitated better using online resources. It's no different than as an instructor, you try to choose the best textbook because it supplements what you as an instructor don't know or aren't really capable of teaching. I think the same principle holds um, with technology. And maybe as you're going into those higher levels of learning, that's then when you come into the face-to-face situation where maybe there's role playing, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, where now they're taking that knowledge that they gained during those online weeks and they're now trying to apply it, work with it, and use it in some way that is better to have in that dynamic mm-hmm. of face to face. Well, that's one of the concepts I've been really, really thinking about, which is, you know, if we can use the time when we're not together more efficiently than we create. In fact, in a classroom, a performance space, mm-hmm. a place where we can, as faculty members, check their work in real time, you know, and let's, let's see how are they applying these concepts and how are they integrating them into their worldview. Well, I think that's really important because I do worry sometimes that in our push to do this, this online that we miss that component that is so valuable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of valuable to the whole touching and feeling and seeing and those sorts of things. And so you're right, if we can kind of get the basics across in the online and then, you know, reinforce that and practice that and experience it when you get together, then that's the best of both worlds, essentially. Yeah. Exactly. So when you start to parse up the needs, the needs you have as an educator, when, it, when it's information communication, just pure dissemination of content, that can be very well done um, using an online tool. But I like, actually, Pete, a lot. You're, the notion of classroom is kind of this performance space because when you mm-hmm. start talking about technique, craft, skill, 
you know, I mean, it, it sort of goes without saying when you when you're talking about a, a craft base, really broadly construing what we think of as craft, whether mm-hmm. it's mechanics to any number of things, you know, to, to surgeons. I expect that education will always have a sort of hands-on component until we no longer needs to need to have hands on our cars, whether they're whenever self repairing or something <laughs> like that, right? He said, rolling his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think there's this great capacity for the classroom to be used as a sort of pressure tank. And and I I think the idea of still having the classroom face-to-face environment, whether it's, you know, you can think about the kind of classic model, which would be, you know, John Houseman in the paper chase, putting the students, you know, right under the gun, calling out somebody out and, and seeing if they actually know what they're talking about. I don't think that can ever really be replicated and I think it's great value to the students to be in the kind of classroom setting where they have to engage in, in real time with you know the people sitting next to them. And some of that can be done using web technologies or online technologies. But being in the classroom for assessment for that kind of environment, I think it's still... I've uh, said for a long time... Advantage. I've said for a long time that I think what will happen is over time is the, the on-ground will become this real elite proving ground and mm. then the online will become the more commonplace. So it's like everybody has access to technology, everybody has access to education and those sorts of things and then it becomes if you want to go to like the next step, then it becomes you actually physically get in your car or whatever it is and go to mm. that campus and then it augments what you're already doing but it, it actually switches the way it is today mm-hmm. when you see this this role reversal. Well, when you look at where the bar is, I mean the, you know, the online you can go up through your master's degree and many programs around the country and they're exclusively online Uh, and yet as soon as you get into a doctoral program Mm -hmm. they cost a lot more the coursework's a lot more rigorous and you have to have a residency that's the elite part it is exactly totally it's it's that i mean if you think about there's something that we humans like about getting together and and i always go back to infants When, when infants are are, are preemies and those sorts of things. If, the, if they're just in the incubator by themselves and they don't get that human interaction, they don't do very well. Right. But they want to be touched. They want to mm-hmm. be talked to. So there's a certain amount of biology for us that says we need those things. And so the further along we advance, those become you mm-hmm. know more and more important for us in, the, in certainly the education. So I think it's always going to be this mm-hmm. kind of elite. Yeah, I, mean, I think... I've done a lot of research and quite a bit of work with brain-based learning as well. And having an environment, you know, if you bring your students into a very sterile, it's all painted seafoam green kind of environment, you know, you get a very different sort of learning feel on the part of your students. But you, as an educator, can create a learning environment that it can be everything from very comfortable and relaxing to very threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does, you know, I mean, there are plenty of research that backs up that that affects the way you learn, interact, and engage with what's going on. And to me, the point is not to do these sort of things in, in some sort of, just for the sake of, of kind of having fun or playing around. The point is to help prepare your students for once they've graduated. And to tie up that point, I think, James, you were making this earlier, talking about how these tools and how this kind of instruction matches up the expectations of the real world. I mean, for so many, for so many folks out there, being on the job doesn't necessarily mean being in the office. So much of the work that gets done in the world is done remotely or, you know, for me, I go to the office a lot to be connect, you know, just 
and I'm connected. I'm not necessarily talking on the phone. I'm not in meetings all the time. I think, and, and there's certainly plenty of days when I work from home because I don't need to be in the office because it doesn't offer, um, you know, a, a big change from, you know, from the office versus right. versus home. Well, you can and you can be, you know, in some offices. I mean, people are six cubes apart, and they still don't only yeah. communicate either instant messenger or email. You know, where do you want to go to lunch? I don't care. You know, meet mm-hmm. you in the hallway. I mean, they never get up and walk over to yeah. the cube. That's really where business is going now. With it. That that's embarrassing. Whether well, that's a good thing. Yeah, there's a whole discussion. <laughs> that's is a that whole good other or bad, thing. right? Because there certainly are a lot of downsides to that, and, and I worry about a lot of those things. Is that, so, that I mean, you know, our our culture of work, 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 sure. work. That's what's most important, mm-hmm. and that that would be where I'd worry. Where technology is Absolutely. taking our culture is or, is even more of the expectation that well, you can do that from home, and who yep. cares if it's Saturday night at eight o'clock? Because I mean, we have these fixed space issues, and we're not going to be taking out the leases that we once did because you exactly. can be virtual. Exactly. In short, see, the uh, Matrix really was a true story. That's right. <laughs> so we just haven't learned. We haven't it yet. figured it out yet. Figured but it, it out. Totally is true. Yeah. Our bodies are all awesome. We're just in these little pods. So we're all doomed. <laughs> and with that, uh, back to work. That, That's uh, a good uh, place. We've huh? wrapped up a good uh, a good hour. Uh, thank you so okay. much, everybody, for sitting around the table. Thank you so much to our guest, Steve Burt. It was thank a you, joy having you. Yeah. Yes. Where can we find you? Uh, <laughs> Besides right here, right now, <laughs> when you leave, where will you be? <laughs> I suppose the easiest place to get a hold of me would be at www.clarity-innovations.com. Um, you have a MySpace account? I'm not Come on, man. I just searched for it. I couldn't find it. What can it come out? I'll let you search and try to find it. <laughs> you can also find my uh, podcast at edtechcoasttocoast.com. Right? Which is a great podcast. It's monthly, right? Yeah, it's monthly. For me, it's daily because I listen to like the last six months all in a row, so I, I'm quite about a touch. But it's a great podcast, Ed Tech Coast to Coast. Check it out. And, uh, Thanks, you know, Ken. Yeah, good for Jamie. Thank yeah, you. We did Mary. good. Thanks for sitting around. Enjoyed this is good work, and we will uh, we'll catch you next week, Tuesday noon. You can send us an email at Tuesday12 at gmail.com, and uh, you can always find uh, the links to the stories that we've talked about and um, uh, at uh, delicious, D-E-L dot I-C-I-O dot U-S slash Tuesday noon. Have a good week, everybody. Talk to you next Tuesday. This has been Tuesday Noon for June 13, 2006. For more information on the stories we discussed on today's show, check out our profile on Delicious. That's D-E-L dot I-C-I-O dot U-S slash Tuesday Noon. And send us email, Tuesday12 at gmail.com. Talk to you next week at Tuesday Noon.